I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business. This week, Christmas is cancelled at BA as it faces 12 days of strikes. Can the world's favourite airline really survive this latest wave of industrial action? Plus, we talk Christmas excess and New Year's resolutions with behavioural economist Dan Ariely. This is The Business from The Guardian. Now, it's the only story in town. British Airways' cabin crew will begin a 12-day strike next week, disrupting the plans of around a million customers and costing the company untold damage to both its reputation and its balance sheet. Well, bumping himself up to business class, join me here in the pod, is the Guardian's transport correspondent, Dan Milmo. Dan, what's the latest? Well, it's a very fast-moving situation, but certainly what hasn't changed is that BA and the Unite Union, uh, who represent 12,700 cabin crew, aren't getting on very well. BA has, uh, is seeking an injunction in the High Court, uh, possibly Thursday, to stop the strike from going ahead, which is probably good news for the million-odd BA passengers who are wanting to fly over Christmas, but ultimately um, it probably will worsen an already pretty bad industrial relations situation and means there'll probably be another strike further down the line instead. Isn't BA famous for having quite bad labour relations? Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose the the, euph- the only euphemism you might be able to use is they're quite uh, robust and challenging uh, industrial relations. I mean, it's it's a privatised um, business. You know, it was it was a, a government, a state-owned business before 1987. And like BT and Royal Mail, who've all had their strike issues as well, you know, it has a, a legacy of strong trade union representation. And sometimes that does mean that you have testy, industrial relations issues but let's not forget the last major walkout at BA 1997 yeah it was 97 so um for Willie Walsh's tough talking reputation he's actually overseen a relatively placid period but um this looks pretty bad and how much damage would a strike like this do financially to the company I mean they've already had a loss of what 400 million last year they're going to lose about 600 million this year before um um, strike shenanigans. Um, I think those. If you talk to analysts, I mean, it, it, it's difficult to tell because you know there are savings to be made from a strike. Bizarrely, you don't fly planes. You don't, for instance, pay your cabin crew who are on strike. But um, the estimate is between two hundred and three hundred million for a twelve-day strike. BA has ac- access to cash of about two billion, so it can wear this. Um, and there is a, a feeling that Woody Walsh believes that to be a, a kind of a bargaining chip with him. But that was £2 billion that they wanted to get through the recession, not to get through um, uh, unilateral strike action. So it's it's not ideal. And also the reputational cost is huge because the British press always goes to town whenever there's strikes at BA and the rest of the world notices. Well, I mean, if you listen to the phone-ins or check the internet, it's full of people complaining about their holiday plans being disrupted because of this strike. Why would anyone book BA in the future if this thing actually does happen? Because BA offers um, access to destinations that other carriers don't for a start. For instance, if you want to go to New York or North America, in terms of frequency and availability of service um, from Heathrow, BA is still the one you'll go to. So there'll be grim necessity on the part of some people who really don't like the idea of it, but basically BA is the best choice if they want to be in you know, New York for 12pm or Los Angeles for 3pm that day. So that's one reason why people will come back. And I mean, let's not forget in 2007 there was a near strike, a sort of quasi-strike um, over 
three days, when which was called off at the last minute because cabin crew got their pay rise. But BA still had to cancel three days' worth of flights in the run-up to that. And that caused a lot of disruption to people, admittedly at a quietish time of year. But passenger numbers didn't suffer a visible dip thereafter. And passenger numbers are suffering at BA um, in the long term because of competition and because of um, particularly from Ryanair and EasyJet. But I don't, I don't think the industrial relations situation is, is necessarily the, the real driver behind that. OK, but in this recession, one year on from the banking crisis... It, the sort of strike you're describing sounds like a case of mutually assured destruction for both workers and for management. I mean, do you really think it's going to go ahead? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I was at the Sandown meeting on Monday, which had several thousand cabin crew there who are, are you know, very reasonable people. Not your, as the head of Unite said, not your average militant hardliners. There's a real sense of institutional institutional memory among these cabin crew. I met people who've been there for two years, 10 years, 20, 30, and someone who'd been there for more than 40 years. And they have a, a real sense of pride in the airline to the extent that they're quite willing to cause it um, quite a lot of damage. And I asked this to one person, said, you're going to really damage the airline by doing this. And they said, well, it's damaged already. And there's a sort of um, wounded pride at play here. They they care very passionately about the airline. I don't really doubt that for a second. And they they feel like they're taking a, a stand on principle about this. They um, Bizarrely, the amount of conversations I had about how long it takes to do a decent meal service in economy class cabins at this meeting, they're saying, God damn it, you know, it takes three and a half hours when it used to be two and a half. And this is a real problem for them. They feel like passengers are having a, a tougher time since staffing levels were reduced, which is what this strike is about. And so... Yeah, I, I got absolutely a very strong sense that they're willing to walk out for 12 days just on, on this principle that they believe that it's not the airline that it was. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. And now for something completely different. All right, and shamelessly themed around Christmas and New Year. The holiday period is a time of excess. We eat too much, we drink too much and we spend too much. So what about our New Year's resolutions? What's the best way of making sure we stick to them beyond January the 2nd? Well, Dan Ariely is a professor of behavioural economics at Duke University and head of MIT's e-rationality research group. And his bona fide rockstar economist has a few friendly words of advice. We make these resolutions and they don't have any, any teeth to them. Because and at the moment we make them, we have all these good intentions to start exercising, to save more money, to spend more time with our family, to finish writing a book. We have all these wonderful plans. The problem is basically procrastination. At the moment reality hits, all these wonderful plans go away, we, we end up not, not doing them. One of the things we find is that pre-commitment is a very important tool. And you can think about pre-commitment as either a financial tool or a public embarrassment tool. So imagine that you on your show is, are going to declare some kind of commitment device that you have. And you say, I'm going to do X. I'm going to stop smoking, I'm going to exercise more. And, and you basically put something on the line, like your reputation. So you're telling your friends and your family and your listeners, and you say, here is what I'm committing and doing. And if you catch me doing something else, uh, tell me I'm, I'm not doing well. Right? So you're using other people as a way to reflect on yourself and make sure that you're really doing it. So you say your friends at work, let's say you want to stop smoking, you say, I'm going to stop smoking. If you see me smoking... Tell me to stop, reprimand me, remind me of those things, humiliate me, embarrass me, and so on. The other possibility is to think about financial rewards. 
So we've done this thing in terms of colonoscopy. I don't know, have you had a colonoscopy? <laughs> no, I haven't. No. It turns out nobody really enjoys those things. It's not as if you wake up one morning and you say, today I feel like colonoscopy. And because of that, uh, people don't show up for colonoscopy. So, so we asked people to pre-commit. We said, look, on the day when your doctor prescribe you or order you a test of colonoscopy in a couple of months, you're going to write a check for $500. And if you show up to colonoscopy on time, you will get your money back. But if you don't, this money will go away. The doctor will, will get it. Now, you would still not wake up on time wanting to, you know, wanting to go to colonoscopy, but you would also not want to lose your money. And as a consequence, there's a good chance you'll actually go for colonoscopy. So the, the idea here is not just to use public humiliation, but to use financial rewards and basically create a situation in which you promise you do something that will get your future self to behave in a certain way. You give your money to your, some money to your spouse and you say, if I don't do this, take this money and give it to a charity I hate. Or if I don't do this, do something like this. You create agreements that will make your future self. And by the way, even Warren Buffett, you know, the very famous um, financial wizard has been doing this. Warren Buffett in his book described a situation where he has a problem with sweets. So what he did was he gave his kids checks for $10,000, and he told them that if they, if they catch him eat sweets, he will sign the checks for them. And he didn't want to do that, so his kids basically tried to tempt him with eating candy, but he was so against writing them checks for $10,000 that it helped him overcome his temptation for sweets. There you go. Incentivize colonoscopies and Warren Buffett's sweet tooth. You don't get that on today's programme. That was Professor Dan Ariely. Find out more about him at predictablyirrational.com and find out more about us on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business because that's the end of our programme. And if you can handle it, we're back with a special Christmas edition of the podcast next week. For now, though, all blame really should be levelled at our producer, Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was the business. <laughs>